I'd like to introduce the prayer with a passage, a few verses from the ninth Psalm, where we read these words in verses 9 and 10. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in, a t- in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek, who seek you. Father, we're so grateful that you have not forsaken us. You never will. We are yours. We have been bought with a price. We are part of your kingdom. We are your creation. We are the church. And we thank you, Father, that you are here with us, that the Spirit of God dwells among us, that Christ is in our midst. As we worship the triune God and look to you for what you will do in our hearts today. We're here for fellowship. We're here for study of your word. We're here to pray for those who need our prayers this morning. And Lord, we ask you to minister to each of us according to our need, which you know far better even than we. Lord, I ask that you will uh, bless as the word is proclaimed in the services and in other Sunday school classes this morning, that you will be glorified. And today, as, as the word of God is proclaimed in many parts of the world and has been, as the day is mostly over in much of the world already, we trust that many are added to your kingdom. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'll turn to the third chapter of the book of Ruth, I'd like to read beginning at verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. Behold, a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. We looked at this passage, at least began looking at this passage last week. And it is, of course, one of the very interesting passages of Scripture, not only in the content of what happened, but in the proclamation uh, uh, that Ruth, that Boaz makes concerning Ruth here, saying that everybody in the city knows that you are a woman of excellence. And we noted last time that that doesn't just mean excellence in that she uh, cooks better than others or sews better than others. It means a a woman of excellent character, a person of virtue, a person of honesty, of integrity. And this is quite a statement to be made considering the fact that she is recently from Moab. She is a Moabitess. She is a foreigner. And the Moabites were not people that the Israelites particularly loved. And, of course, the Moabites worshipped pagan gods. But Ruth has chosen to worship the God of Israel. And as a result, she has followed his character. She has learned quickly the character of God. 
Uh, many times we sometimes feel that we cannot understand what God is really like from reading the Old Testament, but I do not believe that is true. And I think as we've had our study so far, we can see that to be so. I don't think there's anything of the character of God uh, that is revealed in the New Testament that you don't also see in the Old Testament of who God is, his attributes, his nature. And our job as believers today is to become more and more polished mirrors that we might reflect the nature, the character of, of Jesus into this world in which we live. And, and that is what Boaz is saying of Ruth. Now, he's not referring to Jesus, of course, because Jesus has not yet come. But he is referring to the nature of, of God and that she is reflecting who God is to all. Uh, and it, it, she especially stands out because she is an alien in the land. She's a newcomer. She is a person who came with, with many negative things against her because of the fact that we're talking about a xenophobic society. Uh, the Israelites, the Jews, have always been uh, those who not particularly appreciate foreigners. And uh, not that other tribes necessarily did either, but uh, she has come a long ways here. And we noted last time, I believe, at the end of class that uh, today we could use a few more Ruths and Boaz in the church people who truly reflect the nature of God, who aren't always trying to compromise and always trying to walk the closest they can to the world and still be, quote, Christian, uh, coloring everything gray rather than seeing absolute truth. Of course, you know, we're living in a society today where absolute truth is being negated. People are telling us there is no such thing as absolute truth. It's only what you perceive, however you perceive it. That's what's true for you, but it might be different truth for somebody else. But we have to, if we believe in the Word of God, know that there is absolute truth and that we live in a world where absolute truth still works. And Ruth is demonstrating the, this excellence in living according to the truth that she has come to understand concerning the character of God. And that's where it is for us. We need to know Jesus so well that we reflect his attitude in everything that we do, that we have the love for others that this woman had for her mother-in-law in such a way that she would sacrifice herself on behalf of her mother-in-law. And that she did by coming in the, in the first place, to leave everything that she had known in her whole life and to come to a foreign land simply knowing only this one person, her mother-in-law, Naomi. If we learn nothing else from the book of Ruth except the absolutely essential nature of self-denial, that's a, a foundational aspect of Christianity, self-denial, and Christ-like excellence, we will have learned enough to transform the world around us. We will truly be disciples of Christ. As, as I was thinking of that thought this morning, um, the, the verses came to me in uh, John chapter 15. They're just a couple of verses, and they're very short. Let me just uh, read them to you. Uh, Jesus, of course, gives the, the, the vine and the branch discussion at the beginning of the chapter. And then down in verse 14, he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. You are my friends if you do what I command. In other words, we are his disciples if we do what he says we are to do. We're not his disciples simply because we have prayed a prayer and we say we, we belong to Jesus and we go to church uh, once a week. That doesn't make us a disciple of Christ. A disciple of Christ is one who does what he says. And what does he say? Well, down in verse 17, he's, well, in verse 14 he says, You are my friends if you do what I command. 
And then verse 17, he says, this I command you, to love one another. This is the command, the, the chief command. And of course, Jesus had st stated it earlier. What, what are, how, how does the Ten Commandments boil down? It boils down to loving God with all our whole heart, strength, and might, and each other as we love ourselves. This I command you, love one another. And that's what Ruth is reflecting. She's reflecting true love for Naomi to the point that she's sacrificed her future, it would seem, at least on the outside. She sacrificed her future for the sake of this lady. We don't see that much in our society. We do see a few Mother Teresas around, uh, but they are usually viewed as, as people out on the extreme, some kind of fringe element, you know. Mother Teresa, wow, she's really weird. You know, she's got three or four halos all stacked on top of one another, you know, as opposed to uh, the standard Christian in our society today who's, whose love for himself is um, rather evident usually. Self-denial is not something that's much taught in the Christian circle um, anymore. And it's hard in our society because our society is a self-indulgent society. Well, the focus, uh, we look, I don't know if you watch commercials, I try to avoid them as much as possible. That's why I'm really thankful for the mute button. <laughs> if, there was, if the mute button would also turn off the picture <laughs> for the length of, that would be good too. But, I mean, all the commercials are, you know, make yourself more beautiful, make yourself smell better, I mean, do whatever. You know, it's all focused on self, no self-denial. As we, as we look at the characters of Ruth and Boaz, we find that they really are suited to one another. Evidently, Boaz had already considered becoming the redeemer for Ruth and Naomi before Ruth had ever come. This had clearly passed through his mind. And he uh, knew that there was one hurdle that stood in the way of this being a reality, and that there was another Goel, another kinsman redeemer, another close relative, who was actually closer to Naomi than was Boaz himself. And so something had to be negotiated here, so the way would be cleared for Boaz to be actually fulfill the function of kinsman redeemer if that was what was going to happen. Now, there does not seem to be indi any indication that the law of God demanded that the closer one fulfill the role. It seems to be a matter of custom. The law is that if a person dies and leaves a widow with no children, that the brother is to come. Well, it doesn't really say necessarily the order of the brothers. And of course, we've understood as we've looked at this that it, doesn't, it goes beyond being a brother. It can be any close relative. But custom demanded that the closest blood relative be first responsible, have the opportunity to be the kinsman redeemer. And he, so uh, Boaz is saying, I must give priority to this other person. That's the one hurdle that stands between you and me. According to Hebrew tradition now, this other closer relative may have been a brother of Elimelech. We can't know that for sure. The scripture does not tell us that, but that is at least Hebrew tradition. Boaz urged Ruth to stay where she was after they've had this conversation in the middle of the night, you know, dark night, and they're talking to each other in soft tones there on this threshing floor in the shadow of a heap of barley there. And he, he tells her, okay, uh, this is what we're going to do, so you lie back down and get some rest, and in the morning I will begin to settle this matter. If the closer relative would serve as Goel, no, Boaz says to her, he had to be given that right. However, 
if he does not choose to fulfill that role to redeem Elimelech's property and to marry Ruth, Boaz made it quite clear, I will happily do so. What is interesting is that he makes it quite clear that this was what he wanted to do. Boaz's noble character, I think, really comes through even in this scenario that we're looking at right here. First of all, he insists that Ruth stay right here. Don't try to wander off through the dark night. Stay right here uh, by my feet, under my protection, until the morning. Secondly, he keeps his hands off this lady. She's vulnerable. She's here. She's, in effect, proposed to him. And yet he keeps her very uh, much uh, safe there by him in every sense of the word. And then thirdly, he flatters her by pledging to marry her and reinforcing it because he says, I will fulfill the role of Goel as Yahweh lives. He takes an actual oath saying, I will do this as God lives. Well, let's look at the next uh, last passage in verse chapter 3, verse, beginning of verse 14. So she, that is Ruth, lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. It's dark on a... uh, We have to realize in those days, Cloudy or not cloudy, you didn't get nice reflected light <laughs> off the clouds like you do here in Reading. You know, in Reading, a, a real cloudy night sometimes is a very bright night because all the lights are reflecting back off the cloud. It's dark out there in the countryside around Bethlehem, and so she she stayed there at his feet in, in security through the night until probably about a half hour before sunrise, maybe a little earlier than that, depending. Just it's just starting, just starting to get light. And so she got up. When it was light enough for her to be able to see where she was going without stumbling over everything, and yet not light enough for anyone to recognize her. Boaz, I think, urged her to leave at that time and further encouraged her, and and it says in the passage there, to keep anyone from knowing that she had been at the threshing floor that night. I I, I don't think he really needed to say that. I don't think she was going to go around broadcasting it anyway. But the point is, that this was to be kept quiet. Now, nothing untoward had happened. There was nothing wrong about what had happened that night, but neither of them wanted to provide any ammunition for the local gossips. There always are gossips. Any society, any place in the world, any time in history, there are gossips. That's one of the reasons why the scripture talks so much about gossiping being uh, something to be avoided uh, within the church. Ruth's reason for being at the threshing floor that night was not a typical reason. It was a rather unusual unusual reason for her being there. And certain perverse individuals would say, yeah, right, that's your excuse. You really were out there with, you know, there was hanky-panky involved, we know. Although the passage in 1 Thessalonians had not been written yet, uh, the truth was already understood by both Ruth and Boaz to abstain from all appearance 
of evil. That's a short little statement in Scripture. But it's a statement in Scripture which seems to have largely been forgotten within the church in America today. And so many who, who want to call themselves Christians seem to cozy up as close to the world as they can and still consider themselves to be Christians. It's like, I, 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 I probably shouldn't even bring it up. Anyway, you've heard people on television, I won't mention any names, who have done something that is, I mean, obviously, you could hardly describe it as Christian in that they would say, well, but judge not that you be not judged. You know, I'm a Christian and, and it's between me and God. Yes, it's between you and God. And I'm glad it's between you and God. But so many people defame the name of Christ by claiming to be Christian in the midst of these things that they're doing, which the world would say, I'm not just saying what Christians would judge, but the world would say is wrong. The world would judge that this was not of God. Let me just read a couple of verses from the 14th chapter of Romans. The whole chapter deals with this kind of an issue. But in the 14th chapter of Romans, beginning at verse 19, we read these words. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Of course, he's talking about eating things, sacrificed to idols and that kind of thing. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Now, Paul is not talking about situation ethics there. Paul is, clearly indicates there are things which are obviously sin. There are things which become a sin to a person because in his own conscience he's uneasy with doing this, and yet he does it anyway, such as eating meat that was offered to idols. For some people, like Paul, what's an idol, he says? An idol is nothing. I mean, there are demons behind the idol, but, but the meat has not been really tainted. But if it's in somebody's mind that meat is tainted, he says, I won't eat it. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything by which your brother stumbles. It's a very broad sweeping statement. It means that we have to, every day, be aware of what we're doing, and be aware of our brothers and sisters, and as the scripture says, love one another. Because if our love for another person is strong enough, we will do nothing to hurt them, even if doing it does not hurt us. Because Generally speaking, what we avoid is nothing that's going to, you know, make our lives inconvenient in any such way. For example, just using the drinking of alcoholic beverages. You know, it could be that that's not going to be any harm to you, but if it harms somebody else, then why do it? Why do it? It, it doesn't do, I mean, you don't have any need for it. You're going to live, this is, in fact, you probably live better without it, you know. And, and yet, this is, uh, it's really become an issue in much of the church today. A lot of things, when I, I grew up back in the, in the days when there were a lot of don'ts. You know, that if you went to church, you just didn't do these things. And now we think we're so open-minded because we go ahead and do those things and we don't worry about it. You know, we have freedom in Christ. I think, though, we can take our freedom and make liberty out of it, a libertine lifestyle out of it, which is not at all what God... Uh, intends for us. No, our, our life isn't made up of a big long list of these you don't do, and if you don't do them, you're a good Christian. But the law of love must prevail. If I love my brother, if I love my sister, I will be aware of what offends them and what doesn't, and I will live accordingly. You know, right, that limits my life, but so? Christ's life was a bit limited too, wasn't it? You know, he gave his entire life in ministry and gave his life on the cross. 
that's our example. So who are we to say, oh, but I want to live my life, I want to experience everything. I want to know everything firsthand. Well, Paul was willing to give up anything that he felt would offend another person. Didn't want to take any chances. So Ruth and Boaz were willing to abstain from all appearance of evil. They didn't want anybody to think, even though they had done nothing wrong, they didn't want anybody to even think they could have done something wrong in that situation. As a token of his genuine love and concern for Ruth and Naomi, Boaz asked Ruth to hold her cloak out, and he poured six measures of barley into it as a gift. Now, the exact amount of barley can only be guessed at because the word measure is not measures is not actually in the Hebrew there. It just says that he poured six of barley, six of barley into her cloak. Six what? Well, it doesn't say what. Uh, according to Hebrew commentaries, the measure was a seah. A seah was a third of an ephah. So if that's true, then six seahs, two ephahs, that would be twice the amount of grain that Ruth could glean on a really good day. It also would be enough so that she could go home that day, here's all this barley, and, and she wouldn't have to glean that day or even the next day if gleaning was still possible. We, we don't know. it Since they were into the threshing phase, we know that barley harvest was over. Wheat harvest may or may not have been over. We don't know yet because barley is harvested about a month before wheat is harvested. So she might have been still into gleaning in the wheat fields. We don't know. But with all this, she could give it up for two or three days and not have to do it because here was an adequate supply. And she could remain at home and await the outcome of Boaz meeting with the closer relative because everything hinged on this single meeting. According to verse 15, he laid the cloak filled with grain on Ruth. Now six seahs of barley would weigh approximately 60 pounds. So she probably didn't just take this thing out here and go trudging off back to Bethlehem, you know, it's bad on the back. So she probably did what they did in those days in which they do in many third world societies today. He probably bound it all up and stuck it on the top of her head and she just trundled on back to the city with this bundle on, on top of her head. Now actually this was a good thing because for her to come back into the city with the bundle on the top of her head made her look a lot less conspicuous than if she just walked into the city, big as life, where have you been Ruth? Oh, I've been out for a walk, you know. <laughs> right. So, but coming in with us, obviously she's been working, they might not know where she's been working or how she got so much so quick, but here she comes uh, trudging back into the city with a burden on her head. Obviously she was a busy woman and because her character was already thought to be one of integrity, probably not too many people asked any questions. I think she also, you know, she, they got up before it was really light, before one could, uh, could, could recognize another, the scripture says. And so he gave her this barley and she walked off back to the city. Now we don't know how far away the threshing floor was from the city. One mile, two miles, we don't know. It would of course taken her X amount of time to get back to the city. I think she wasn't in a hurry. I don't think she wanted to hurry to get back in the city because, remember, the city gates open at sunrise. Creek, 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 creek. The city gates open. And, you know, somebody opens the city gates. And if you're standing outside the city gate here waiting for it to open, they're going to know you were outside the city all night. <laughs> Not a good thing for people to know. And so she probably waited until the gates had been open for a while, a few people passed in and out. Then she kind of nonchalantly went into the city and nobody would notice. Nobody would pay any attention. Uh, you know, if it already was light and the gates had been open for a period of time. Whatever the details were, 
God protected the integrity of these two people because they acted in integrity. Since Naomi was responsible for planning the whole episode on the threshing floor with Boaz, she's the one who instructed Ruth what to do, she was naturally concerned about how it turned out, if you can just imagine this. In fact, I think she had a pretty sleepless night, but I think it was a prayerful night. I think she was calling out to God to, to bring good out of this and, and to accomplish uh, His purpose in it all. I think she struggled with fears and doubts. I mean, the whole, her whole future hung on this and that of Ruth, let alone to say that of the Messianic line, which of course was, was unknown to Naomi at that particular point. But all of this hung on what happened here. And so it was of great concern to her. As soon as Ruth returned home, Naomi immediately began to question her as to what happened. Ruth poured out everything. He said, she said, he said, she said, he said, she said. This is what he looked like. With, well, I couldn't tell what he looked like. It was dark out there. But this is what he said. This is what I said. You know, all the details. I think they laughed. I think they hugged. I think they cried. I think there was joy there because they saw the will of God beginning to unfold. This plan had actually worked in every aspect in which Naomi could hope it to work. The only slight glitch was, oh, there's a closer Goel. Ah, Naomi certainly knew that. She certainly knew that. She probably thought, though, that the other Goel isn't going to want to do the job. And so I think she pretty well knew that this would be Boaz's obligation, but she knew that to get this thing rolling, they had to pass through the legal uh, ramifications of it first. Ruth then opened her bundle and showed Naomi six measures of wheat, uh, of barley, gift given by Boaz. This gift confirmed everything that Ruth had said. It confirmed Boaz's concern for Ruth and for Naomi. And I think it warmed Naomi's heart to know that Boaz, in the midst of this nocturnal meeting, had thought of her too, because this gift was sent home for Ruth and Naomi. Obviously, in his mind, this was his role as kinsman redeemer. Naomi's wisdom is further illustrated to us in verse 18 of this passage. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Settled it today. Patiently waiting to see what the Lord will do. Easy, right? We all do it all the time. Oh, Lord, we put it in your hands and we're just going to patiently wait to see what you're going to do. I think patiently waiting for the Lord is a harder aspect of faith and obedience than prayer and action is. In fact, sometimes we're so action-oriented, we go ahead and do it without waiting to see what the Lord would have us to do. I don't think there's any place in Scripture where it's better illustrated with, than the story you know so well of the Israelites standing at the shore of the Red Sea and looking out across this body of water and finding Pharaoh's army coming at them from the other side. Here they are. They're trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. Should they flee? <laughs> Should they fight? Yeah, right. Should they swim? Probably most of them couldn't. But what did God say through Moses? He said, do not fear. Oh, right, God, do not fear. Stand by, be still, and see the salvation which the Lord will accomplish for you this day. 
stand still. You know, some of us at times are so benumbed into to, to doing nothing, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where a situation is going on and we just, we just want to see it resolved and we got our ideas about how to resolve it and, and yet sometimes the Lord wants us to sit still and listen and wait and see what he will do because sometimes we rush ahead where angels fear to tread. There's that passage in Isaiah that we all know so well. Isaiah 41 verse 10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That is a promise of God. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. For I am your God and I will strengthen you. It's always easy to tell someone, don't be anxious. <laughs> but it's another thing to be in their place and to not be anxious. Anxiety is a blight in our society. I think so much of the problems, physical problems, that people have and emotional problems in America today is rooted in anxiety. In the society which we're talking about, of course, they were a little less anxious because society moved along at a more regular pace. There were fewer choices to make. You didn't have to decide, well, when I grow up, what am I going to be? You're going to be what your dad was. You know? And you're going to push sheep through this wilderness as your family has for 3,000 years. You know? So there was no concern about that. And of course, every girl knew what she was going to do, you know. But in this situation, you could see where Naomi could be anxious, Ruth could be anxious. How's this going to turn out? Will Boaz actually do it? Uh, what will the other Goel say? Uh, will he follow through? Will he chicken out? You know, all these things could, could come to mind. But she says, wait and see how the matter turns out. Naomi knew Boaz well enough to know that he would carry out his promise immediately. He was a man of his word. He was not going to procrastinate and leave them hanging for days on end wondering what was going to happen. Instead, she knew he would drop everything that very morning and would go to take care of the matter. That was his nature. That was the kind of person Boaz was. They would know by sunset whether or not Boaz would be the Goel the actual functioning Goel for the family or the other closer relative would be. I think Naomi was pretty sure it would be Boaz and Ruth, of course, was hoping it would be Boaz. Their situation, either way, was going to change radically soon. Well, let's look at the first few verses of chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of, of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moaz, of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. He's using the word brother in the generic sense, like I say brothers and sisters. He's not talking about specific blood brothers here. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here, before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and, after, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up 
the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot, or I, it should say, I will not redeem it. I think that Boaz went into the city not long after Ruth passed through the gate. Certainly he waited until she was through the gate in the city, and then probably half hour, hour later, we don't know what the time frame might be, he passed in the city. He wanted to be there at the gate early enough in the morning so that he would likely encounter this closest relative passing through the city gate. Now, in the Near Eastern world of the day in which we're talking about, there, there was no city hall. There was no county courthouse. All the affairs of the city, be they legal or financial, took place in the gateway or in the open space immediately inside the city behind the gateway. If you've ever been in, in uh, ancient cities, you'll discover most of the cities, at least at, through their main gate, there was a kind of an open area inside the main gate. They didn't usually build right up to the gateway. Or some of the side gates they did, but not the main gate. And it would be that area that would serve as kind of a forum, a, a place for gathering in, and of course, kibitzing all day long too, but uh, a place where the government and, and political, financial things would transpire right there in the open. Israel had no national government at that time. There was no king in Israel. This was during the days of the judges. There was no capital in Israel. They didn't even possess Jerusalem at that time. There was only this tribal form of government. And so all issues would be taken care of on the local level by the local oligarchy. The tribal or clan leaders would gather together and they would hash through the business and take care of it there, right there in that particular place. Nobody was going to tell them in Bethlehem how to take care of their local affairs. Nobody else cared about their local affairs. And so the elders of the city were responsible for seeing to it that these obligations were taken care of. And that is why Boaz goes to the gate, and he sits down in the gate. I believe Boaz was one of the elders of the city. He was a highly respected man. As I've in indicated before, I think he was at least middle-aged. He was not a young man. And so he was there uh, amongst the others, and uh, they'd probably seen him there many times and, and expected him to come from time to time, probably not that day since he was out doing his threshing, but uh, here he was there at that particular day. And as he sat at the gate, talking with the other people, of course, and keeping glancing around who was passing through the gate, he spied the other closer kinsman coming, and he said to him, sit down. Now, I think he called him by name. He probably said, George, come here and sit down, you know. But the scripture gives us no name. The scripture doesn't. You'll notice in that first verse, it says, turn aside friend and sit down here. The Hebrew word paloni does not mean friend in the sense that we think of. It means certain person. It, it's, it roughly means John Doe. In English, it roughly means John Doe. So he called him by name, but the writer inserted John Doe here and did not put the man's name in here. And I think the purpose for that is obvious. Anonymity was good for this man and for his descendants in posterity, the reputation of them because this book will be read annually at the Feast of Pentecost. Every year it'd be read. And how would like your name 
or your great-grandfather or your great-great-grandfather's name to have been read as the guy who didn't do his duty. <laughs> I, you know, it would, it would be a, a bad feeling. I'm descended from that guy. Well, we've talked about that before. We're probably all descended from horse thieves and murderers, but, <laughs> but at least we don't, uh, we probably don't have a prominent picture of them in our, in our album, you know. Anyway, I think the author particularly kept the name of this man anonymous to guard him and his posterity, and certainly God inspired this to be so. Well, I want to go into this in more detail, so we'll pick up there uh, next Sunday.